Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. But before we go to the Lord, hear from the Lord, let's go to him once more in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and the hearing of his word. Pray together with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. We thank you for your word, that it is perfect and it is complete. You have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us all that we need to know for life and godliness. We praise you, Lord. We delight to give you praise, and we ask that you would help us now to believe your word, to base our life upon it, and Lord God, to find comfort as we hear it. We pray, Lord, that the instrument of your word this morning and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, starting verse 3. I'll be reading till verse 14, as you know. Some of you may know in Greek this is uh, all one sentence. Uh, This is one sentence, but in English we break it up into uh, these 11 or so verses. So starting at chapter Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3, please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, last Sunday we began a series uh, on the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. Uh, Five points known by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. This flower of grace, as it were. And so the series of the, the title of this series is The Flower of Grace. And this sermon, the second in this series, uh, is the second petal of that flower, the second petal of the flower of grace. Uh, These five points were originally, as I told you last week, articulated at the Synod of Dort in Holland in 1619. And we were celebrating the 400th anniversary um, of that that synod, that general assembly, if you you will. Um, And this uh, this was a response, right? These five points of the doctrines of grace... Uh, were articulated at the, at 16, in 1619, the Synod of Dort in Holland um, as a response to challenges that were coming to the church. The five points of Arminianism uh, is what they were called. And these points were not new in 1619. 
Um, Dort was simply a reaffirmation of and a restatement of what the church believed and had taught since the beginning of the Protestant Reformation and, and indeed before the Reformation. Uh, one of John Calvin's students was named Theodore Beza, and one of Beza's students was named Jacob Arminius. And Arminius rejected the idea of salvation, that it was based entirely, that it was a bestowal of God's sovereign grace. Right? He and his followers rejected this. Uh, they argued that God provided grace for men to possibly be saved, that the ultimate decision for man's salvation fully rested in the will of man himself. And according to Arminius and his followers, man's will was free and was capable of deciding for or against God, deciding for or against Christ. Uh, God did not determine a man's salvation, but God only provided the possibility of that salvation. And so the decision to be saved or lost rested where? Rested, rested in the individual's free will. Each person had the capacity within himself, they taught, because of his or her free will to decide either for or against Christ. And according to this theology, it was the exercise of that free will that determined the eternal destiny of every human being. And you can see that these are two very different formulations, two very different understandings of the grounds for salvation in God's work. Right? The teaching of the Protestant Reformation and then the challenges that were brought uh, by uh, Jacob Arminius's followers. When we condense this discussion, we try to boil it down, we see that lying behind these are these five points of the flower of grace, the tulip, Calvinism, and the five points of Arminianism that prompted this response. Behind these, lying behind these, is a more basic and fundamental question. The question is this. Whose will ultimately determines the eternal destiny of each human being? Whose will is it? Or in other words, am I saved because God willed it or because I willed it? Is my salvation due completely to the sovereign grace of God in Christ? Or is salvation due to my cooperation with the grace of God? And the answer to that basic fundamental underlying question has tremendous consequences. How you answer that shows which of the two systems or theological understandings that you hold. Last week, we considered the first letter, the first petal of the tulip, the T, right? The, that that uh, total depravity, the total depravity of man. And we saw that the points or the petals of the tulip flow together logically, and they follow each other necessarily. We looked at the first petal, total depravity. We saw that Martin Luther, remember, was correct, right? He was biblically consistent when he wrote that book, The Bondage of the Will, and he showed from God's word that human nature is totally depraved. It is radically corrupt. All the faculties of the soul are under the dominion of sin. They are infected with sin. The fallen man, is, his mind is darkened in its understanding, Ephesians tells us. The fallen heart actively loves darkness and it hates light. The will of man makes its choices according to that darkened mind and that sin-loving heart. And as a result of that... The will of man will never choose what it sees as foolish and repulsive. will never choose God. Fallen and depraved man will never run to the God whom he thinks is foolish and revolting and seeks to avoid. Remember in regard to the nature of man, 
We read the prophet Jeremiah uh, chapter 13 where he says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. No man cannot change his evil nature and act contrary to it. Totally depraved man is spiritually dead. And he cannot move towards God any more than a physically dead man can rise from his bed to take medicine. The will is completely in bondage to sin. And that will cannot and will not ever seek after the God that it desperately wants to avoid any more than, remember, the criminal will seek a policeman whom he's trying to avoid. And so if this is the condition of man, and this is a real downer, this is a real dire description that Scripture gives of the will of the, of the nature of fallen man, if this is the condition of man, and it is, then how can anyone be saved at all? Is there no hope for fallen man? Well, the answer is that he must be saved by God's intervening sovereign grace. God must act. And that's what we see in Scripture, right? The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they each have the roles to play in digging fallen man out of his grave of sin and death by supernatural grace. The Father, we'll see in a minute when we read, uh, we'll look into this. Um, The Father in eternity past, as we read in Ephesians, chooses to save a company of sinners, predestining them to everlasting life. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, redeems those lost elect sheep by laying down his life for them at Calvary's cross and rising unto life, eternal life, on their behalf. And then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, makes alive those elect sheep, though they were dead in sin. He gives them life. He applies that salvation to them. He gives them a new heart. He enables them to believe and to repent and to walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ until that day that he returns in glory. The fountain from which redeeming grace flows is traced back, you see, to eternity past, to the will and the mind of God the Father before the creation of the world. And it is from here that springs the doctrine of unconditional election, the U, the second petal, the second letter of the tulip. Unconditional election uh, is that doctrine uh, of grace, unconditional election. It places the determination of salvation completely in the hands of a sovereign God who is able to do so. Of course, all all Bible-believing Christians, Christians in general, say they believe in salvation by grace. Uh, But unconditional election, the precision, the consistency, it puts the word amazing back into grace. One of my former professors years ago wrote a book entitled that. It was entitled, Putting Amazing Back Into Grace, Restoring to God His Right Place as Sovereign in Regards to Election. I know what a wondrous and glorious truth, right, as you meditate upon our sovereign God who is able, is powerful to give life to the dead and give a heart that beats for him. Uh, This morning we'll begin to look at this wonderful and encouraging biblical truth, unconditional election. Um, I was going to try to do it all in one week, but that's not going to happen, so we'll look at this again next week. Um, We'll look at some of the other facets of this glorious doctrine and some of the outcomes, some of the natural consequences from this glorious doctrine. But this morning, let's first get grounded in just what we're talking about. 
right? We're going to look at definitions, right? What is unconditional election? Well, well, first we have to define what is election, right? Some people have an allergy uh, to this. They don't see this in Scripture, but it's all over in Scripture. Um, and so, so what is election, firstly? And then secondly, what do we mean by unconditional, right? That adjective, that descriptor, it's unconditional election. And then thirdly, what does God's word say regarding these matters? We'll look at some texts that uh, undergird and that instruct us, um, some passages from God's word. Um, as I said, next week we'll look at unconditional electorate and we'll look at God's word and see how this biblical doctrine affects the actions that we take, like prayer and witness, evangelism, um, even preaching, right? What's the connection there? And then we'll also look at uh, that this is a truth for all of God's people, right? All of God's people. It's not a stuffy, complex doctrine that has no bearing on normal, everyday people. It is, it is a truth for all of God's people. It is a glorious truth. <clears throat> but this morning, let's look at what the Bible says regarding election. What is election? Um, let me read again Ephesians. I'll read uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Uh, for this is kind of a chair passage, a key passage in regard to this doctrine. Ephesians 1, 3 Again, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Glorious passage indeed. And that whole section there, verses 13 to 14, is a very Trinitarian passage. Right? It's a very Trinitarian passage. But if you look at verse 4, what does it say there? It says, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ. In the beginning, before God created the world, he chose, he elected he called out the root of the word, and it's used over 40 times uh, in its nominal form, its noun form, and its verbal form. Um, and he chose out, he called out what? A company of people, a host of people to be in Christ. He chose them before the world, so that at the end of the world they should be holy and blameless before him. Right? That is, in his presence for eternity. To be holy and blameless is to be sinless and without fault. Indeed, the will of every believing heart, right? And this will be finally and fully realized at the end of the world, in the resurrection when Christ returns. Uh, listen to Jude, uh, verse 24, agrees with this when he says this, Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in his presence, in the presence of his glory, blameless. Right? Jude 24. He's able to make you keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. Holy and blameless. Right? In this Ephesians passage, we see God as the Alpha and the Omega of his people. He is the planner and the consummator of the elect, of his chosen, of those whom he's called out from eternity past. The Father determines the future of his elect. And this is the case we see all along. This isn't new with Paul. Right? Many passages can be looked at. 
But very briefly, listen to Isaiah 46. Uh, Isaiah 46, verse 9, which gives us really the framework of God's sovereign decree in Ephesians 1. Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Note the emphasis. Note the repetition of God's plan and the execution of his plans. Again, these verses could be multiplied, but we do not have time to look at all them. But listen to the emphasis. He says, his counsel shall stand. His good pleasure will be accomplished. Good pleasure is a better translation of that word there, better than the generic purpose. The word is good pleasure. His kind pleasure will be accomplished, he says. What he has spoken, he will bring it to pass. What he has planned, what he has purposed to do, he will do it. He's not an impotent God, dependent on anything else. He's a sovereign God, completely sovereign. His plans do not fail. What he intends, he does. And why? Again, because he alone is the sovereign God, and there is no other. This is a powerful, powerful passage from Isaiah. If you look back at Ephesians 1, verse 5, again, listen to the similarity. He says, those the Father elected, he predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Right? It begins with him and it returns to him. These words should not, be, should not frighten us. Foreordination, predetermination, predestination. It's just destiny ahead of time. It is the predetermining of what will happen with certainty. God decrees it and it will happen. It is predestiny, predestined, right? And see the word there, predestined. Again, some have an allergy, some deny this doctrine, but, but there it is, right? It's right there in verse 5. <clears throat> the Father does this work of predestining, or predestinating uh, according to what? It says the kind intention of his will or according to his good pleasure again it's good pleasure will favor is what it's saying the people he has elected and predestined according to his good pleasure in eternity past will in eternity be to the praise of his glorious grace you see there in verse 6 election and predestination are to be realized in eternity future in giving glory to God's grace Right, this is why in the next chapter, in chapter 2, he says this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. These are glorious passages, brothers and sisters. Election highlights the grace of God. Election is the choice of God the Father to place sinners into Jesus Christ from eternity past. This doctrine highlights the grace of God. It secures the destinies of those whom he has elected to adoption as sons and their eternal consummation of being what? Again, holy and blameless. Isn't that a wonderful, glorious thing? Isn't that glorious? Isn't that reason for thanks and awe and praise to God? Indeed it is. Indeed. Praise him, brothers and sisters. Give thanks to him 
delight that he is good and merciful and that he is sovereign. He is a sovereign, powerful God. And so that's election. What about this adjective, unconditional? What do we mean by that? Well, unconditional election means that God's sovereign choice is not conditioned by anything in the creature. It's not conditioned by anything in the creature. I know a man who was willed an endowment to send him to seminary. This man knew nothing about it before it was given the wonderful news. He knew nothing about it. He didn't do anything for it. He didn't merit it. He didn't work for it. It was simply a gift given out of love for this man. Unconditional election is the kind of election that the Bible teaches. Right? It's by grace you have been saved. It is a gift of God, right, Ephesians 2. It states that election is not according to some action or attitude or anything else in the creature. They contribute nothing to their election. Rather, election, the election of the Father is simply what? We heard it in Deuteronomy. We've heard it already in the passages that we've read. It is according to his own purpose or to the good pleasure of his will for his glory. Conditional election Right? Conditional election, that doctrine which those challenges, challengers to the church taught, right? those who challenged the church's teaching, they taught conditional election. They explained that election was conditioned upon faith in the creature. Some of you may have heard this in the past. They taught that God chose on the condition of foreseen faith. Right? You've heard this before, I'm sure. Uh, Arminius and his students taught that God could look down the corridors of time to see who would believe. And he chose those whom he knew would choose him of their own free will to believe. That's conditional election. It's conditioned upon the creature's faith, the creature's will. And I hope some of you are sensing, all of you are sensing the problem with that. That creature's will is dead. He's dead spiritually. His nature is in bondage to sin. They said that God elects persons conditioned on foreseen faith in the future, which leaves you man's will being the determining factor for your salvation. Right? Think of the man I described who was willed this endowment. Think of that man who was given the gift of sending him to seminary. And imagine if what was left to him were instructions. Instructions that said, you must do these certain things, and you must accomplish this and that, and on and on. And if you do those things, an endowment will be given to you. You see the difference between those two scenarios? If you do those things, that is a big fat if, right? That would be conditional. That would be a conditional gift, conditioned upon that if, doing those things. That's not how God gives the gift of salvation. A gift is not conditional. God does not give conditional gifts. No, God's grace is better, illustrated, in what happened to the man that I described. For nothing that he had done, nothing, merely from the love and affection and generosity and joy of another, the man received this endowment. And that's what God does for his people. That's what he does for you, brothers and sisters. You belong to Jesus Christ. It's for nothing that you did. He gave you life, and he changed your will. He changed your nature. And therefore, you flee to Christ. Because by nature, now with a new heart and being alive, that's what you do. For nothing in you at all, merely from his lavish love 
his great generosity and his delight. He calls out. He chooses for his own unconditionally. That's awesome. It's overwhelming. It's wonderful. I hope you feel a sense of that in your own hearts, in your own spirit when you pray to the Lord and give him thanks and praise. The biblical view of unconditional election is God's determination to save a people for his own glory. And who can thwart his hand? Who can thwart the hand of the Lord? No one. It is a powerful statement, unconditional election is of God's sovereign grace. His sovereign grace. The view of conditional election is very different. It's God ratifying our decision to believe. Right? The sovereignty of that election resides in the creature, since God must first gain permission from the creature before he can save them. That is not what we read of the sovereign Lord in Scripture. They say God must first check to see if the creature will vote yes for him, and then he ratifies it with his election. And notice, in that system, there's nothing particularly sovereign in that perspective at all. There's nothing particularly, especially amazing or glorifying of God in this view. But in unconditional election, like the title of that book, we're putting amazing back into grace. It is an amazing grace. It is sovereign grace. It is unconditional. Grace means what? It means unmerited favor. Or better yet, it means demerited favor. We've done everything against the Lord. We've demerited. We've earned uh, righteousness. Nevertheless, God gives us a gift. He gifts to us. It's unmerited, demerited favor in his sovereign grace. And by saying that election is unconditional, we highlight that we have done nothing, absolutely nothing to affect our salvation. All we bring to the table, Martin Luther said, was our sin and our filth. Salvation is all of God. And we highlight that God in sovereign grace determined to save us Before the foundation of the world, it says. Even though what? We had merited only his wrath. Why? Because by nature, Ephesians 2 says, we were children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. This deeply moves us. It should deeply move you, dear Christian, to stand in wonder and awe and shout out, why should God ever save a wretch like me? But praise be to the sovereign Lord of heaven. He did choose me according to his own purposes, to the glory of his amazing grace. I pray that is true of you as well. This morning, oh, what a wonderful grace and mercy and love and power of our Lord. What sovereign grace of our wonderful Lord, the song says. And so that's election, unconditional. And then lastly, Let's take some time to begin to work through, look at just a few passages from God's word regarding this wonderful truth of God choosing a people for himself, choosing a people for his own pleasure and glory. First, let's turn to the words of Jesus during his earthly ministry in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and notice in verse, uh, what he says in verse 37. John 6, 37. Notice the qualifiers in what's being said here. 
John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Sounds like a pretty sure thing, right? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Father has given certain ones to Jesus, and every one of them shall come to Jesus, and he will never cast them out. Praise God. This people the Father gives to Jesus are whom? It's none other than the elect. Notice verse 39. Go down to verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I shall lose nothing. And then notice again towards the end, drop down to verse 65, the end of this discourse, the end of this discussion, John 6, 35. And he said this, uh, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Seems pretty cut and dry, right? No one can come to me unless what? It is granted him by the Father. The Father has to grant it for anyone to truly come to Jesus. The passage is saying that apart from the granting of the Father, no one will come to Christ. No one. So you see the doctrine of election shines brightly here. And then notice the response of his disciples in verse 66 to this teaching. Notice their response in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is what has been called uh, Jesus' his, his church reduction program. right? Not church growth, but church reduction. After these things, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is a difficult teaching indeed, but what this did, it had the the beneficial effect of clarifying Christ's true believers, true followers, right? And do you see how the doctrine of election was not a secret, was not suppressed by the Lord in his teaching, was not secret in his teaching. He was fully self-conscious that the response of men and women to him and to his preaching were nothing less than the eternal decree of election, Right? God's eternal degree, decree of election coming to the surface, surface in their lives as he preached and as he taught. Those whom were chosen came to him. Right? My sheep hear my voice. Right? Let's Jesus. Let's turn now over to Acts chapter 13. Uh, Acts chapter 13. Is, of course, the author is uh, Luke, the physician. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 48, I'm sorry, 46, uh, just verses 46 to 48. It says this, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And notice what it says. 
And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? As many, they responded, rejoicing, glorifying. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They believed. Right? Notice the phrase, why did they believe? Because they were appointed by God to believe. When were they appointed? For the foundation of the world. Christ will lose none that are given to him by the Father. God did not appoint them because they believed. That wouldn't be an appointing. That's exactly what those challengers to the church were saying. They want the verse to say, as many believed were appointed to eternal life. That's the opposite of what it says. It's the opposite. It's not what the verse says. It says those who were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Verse 48 there is completely against or contrary to this view of conditional election. That election is conditioned upon foreseen faith. There's absolutely no hint here of God looking down these theoretical corridors of time to see what response these Gentiles would give to the gospel and then electing them on that basis. That is not what we see here in this verse. We've heard from Paul in Ephesians. We've heard from Jesus in the Gospel of John. We've heard from Luke. And he gives here the same view that was taught by Paul and the Lord. Those who were appointed to eternal life, they believed. They believed. If you believe in Christ and you're following Jesus Christ, if you're living for him, if your faith uh, for all of your life, this life and the next rests in him, you were appointed to believe. Right? These Gentiles, they believed because they were appointed, not they were appointed because they believed. Right? Do you understand what's going on there? Do you, see, do you get the difference? And again, what about you this morning? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? If that is you, if you love Jesus, you live for him, you look to him with thanksgiving, then you come into his courts with praise. And you come and we worship him. We give him glory. Because it was his sovereign decree, his election, his plan, his appointment that granted to you, given to you from all eternity, that caused you your belief in the Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? If not for his sovereign grace of unconditional election, you could not believe and you would not believe because you were totally dead because of your totally depraved nature. This means that worship and thanksgiving and praise for God's amazing grace in electing a people from all eternity. And you, dear Christian, you owe it all to him for those whom he appointed to eternal life believed. Praise God. Praise him indeed. <clears throat> Let's wrap up uh, looking at one more verse here. Let's go back to Romans chapter 9. Read a quite lengthy passage, <clears throat> Elder Peachy, earlier in the New Testament reading um, because of the importance and uh, clarity with which um, the Bible states these things. And I'm going to read again, starting at verse 9, Romans 9, 9. Please give your full attention here. <clears throat> I'll read down to verse 23. Starting at verse 9. For this... Is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election 
might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, is, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That sounds like a sovereign God to me. And you might say that for God to choose Jacob and to reject Esau, for God to have mercy upon whom he will and to harden whom he wills, and for God to make of the same lump sinful humanity and to mold some vessels to display his just wrath, and to mold other vessels to display his mercy. You might say that is all simply unfair. It's not fair. It's not fair. But verse 20 is fairly clear. And he anticipates this response. And verse 20 says, Who are you to answer back to God? God is sovereign. And he has a perfect right to give people what they deserve. And if God just so happens to have mercy on some, what is that to you? Well, for us, it is praise. It is praise indeed. It is a cause for rejoicing. But God doesn't owe anyone anything other than wrath, the just wrath for their sins, judgment for their rebellion. And if God in his sovereign wisdom decides to lavish his love and his grace upon the elect... What should wonder and amaze us is not that he didn't save everyone, but that he saved anyone at all. That's what should startle us. Fallen humanity, cosmic rebellion against the Lord of the universe, that he saved any for his good pleasure. That is amazing. That he plucked you, brothers and sisters, from the fire. That is awe-inspiring. That is glorious. Notice very clearly from this text, first, that election is unconditional. Unconditional. Uh, Romans 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Quite clear, quite vivid, quite striking. God would distinguish them on the basis of his own purpose, his own good pleasure. It was not in any sense of the word based on something in them. 
Election is unconditional. And then secondly, the distinguishing factor that we see here between the two destinies is not the will of man. It is the will of God. It's the will of God. Uh, Again, Romans 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, what does it say? Not on human will. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Crystal clear. And then verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So we have seen that unconditional election is God's choice, his sovereign choice of a people whom he would save in history through Jesus Christ. A people whom one day he will bring into his glorious presence, his, whole, his, his own children, holy and blameless, the praise of his glorious grace. That is amazing grace, is it not? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It is sovereign grace. It is sovereign grace which works completely apart from the will of man. Indeed, God conquers. He is a victor over our rebellious, sinful, dead wills. And so being reminded this morning of that second letter of the acrostic tulip, unconditional election, being reminded of that, grace becomes a hymn of thanksgiving and praise to our sovereign triune God. Let us always remember, dear Christian, let us always remember and delight in our Savior, Jesus, who gave his life for his people. Indeed, for those whom the Father gave him, the chosen of God in Christ. I pray that that is you this morning. For it is our dear, loving, powerful Savior who accomplishes the redemption decreed by the Father from all eternity. Redemption is accomplished. May we praise our merciful and beautiful Redeemer and King always. May we afresh be put in our place by this wonderful truth. And may we render thanks and honor to our wonderful Lord, all to the praise of his glory. Amen.